When, when Jesus was asked about marriage, he quoted from the Old Testament. He said this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We can see that Jesus emphasized two genders. God made humanity male and female. And Jesus explained that the reason for maleness and femaleness is so that a man and a woman can leave their parents and be joined together in one flesh. In other words, Jesus upheld God's intention for marriage as both lifelong and gendered, the exclusive and permanent union of a man and a woman. Now for millennia, this biblical teaching has underpinned the ancient institution of marriage in Western society. Which is why when Australia introduced its first marriage act in 1961, it didn't even include a definition of marriage. Because it didn't need to. That marriage was between a man and a woman was recognised and accepted beyond doubt. But in the last two decades, we've seen a radical redefinition of marriage, haven't we? According to this new definition, gender doesn't matter to marriage. Men can marry men, women can marry women. So in 2001, Netherlands became the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. There are now 28 countries around the world that have legalized same-sex marriage. And of course, as you know well, our country joined this ever-growing list uh, in December of 2017. In just a few decades, the Christian moral vision, which had underpinned marriage for millennia, has, has effectively collapsed. And homosexuality is now being celebrated as a perfectly acceptable, even desirable, lifestyle. In fact, the cultural consensus today is that not only is the Bible's teaching outdated and ancient, but that it's actually repressive and cruel. So on ABC's Q&A program a few years ago, this is what one of the panellists said. You people have no idea how unspeakably cruel you are. That nonsense, that poetic nonsense. All God's creatures, and we love you, but you can never have sex. You have to live your life an entirely sterile life without sex. It is so unspeakably nasty and cruel. I'm sorry, I have no patience with it anymore. It is just bigotry and cruelty and hatred. But of course, it's not just non-Christians who are feeling this way, is it? More and more Christians are beginning to feel this way too. You might be one of them. You might be asking, why, uh, why is the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, homosexuality so out of step, so cruel? Why does God deny homosexuals happiness, intimacy, and sex? Why can't we just let homosexuals express their love for one another? Objections like these have led some Christians to renounce their faith altogether. Others continue to call themselves Christians, but have rejected this area of the Bible's teaching. So today, I want to address this underlying question. And that is, in today's world, why should I listen to the Bible's teaching on marriage and sex? That sex is just for a marriage of a man and a woman. In other words... Why should I accept God's story of sex rather than our culture's story of sex? And we're going to do this by going through three points on your outline. First, we're going to look at the changing attitudes 
towards homosexuality in our society. Second, the unchanging teaching of the Bible on homosexuality. And third, what Christian discipleship looks like for those who experience same-sex attraction. So first point, changing attitudes. How does such a radical shift in our culture's attitudes to homosexuality come about? And what made our culture's story of sex so plausible to so many ordinary people? Uh, in In this next 10 minutes, we're going to go through 300 years of history. So are you ready? The modern roots can be traced back to the 18th century Enlightenment. Now, this philosophical movement challenged the the, uh, blind acceptance of religious authority, and it held up human reason as the primary source of knowledge. So, for example, uh, René Descartes famously said, I doubt, therefore I think, I think, therefore I am. Descartes reasoned that the simple facting of doubting one's existence proves that one, uh, one person, one is thinking, and therefore proves that he is existing. So for Descartes, human reason alone determined knowledge. Now, Immanuel Kant came along. He tried to balance the pendulum a little bit. Kant argued that knowledge requires not only human reason, but also our sensory experience of the world. Both reason and experience are necessary. Nevertheless, for Kant... Reason is responsible for processing the sensory experience that we get. In other words, the mind remains in control. Now, philosophical ideas like these have eroded the assumption that there is an objective moral order to the world. And it's given birth to the conviction uh, that personal individual choice is the true basis for morality, the true basis for making decisions about what is right and what is wrong. Then came along Sigmund Freud after the Enlightenment and the influence of sexual psychology in the 19th and 20th centuries. Freud claimed that homosexual desire underlies all heterosexual desire. He also claimed that sexual repression is likely to cause neurotic illness. So if you have desires and you don't act upon them, that is not going to make you well. So this led Freud's disciples to conclude that those who experience homosexual desires should act on them. We've covered 18th to 20th centuries. Now these ideas from these 18th to 20th centuries, that morality, including the area of sex, is my personal choice, that I should be free to express it however I like, began to converge in the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Now, at the heart of this revolution was the idea that sex should not be confined to traditional heterosexual marriage. I should be free to have sex with whoever I like. A major factor was the invention of the contraceptive pill in 1961. Because what did the contraceptive pill do? It severed the link between sex and conception. Um, And this combined with the... the more effective treatment for STDs led to a dramatic increase in sexual experimentation. And that's for both heterosexuals and homosexuals. It has also resulted in a highly sexualized culture in which we live today. So as one author observes, sex is portrayed much more explicitly in literature and films. Cohabitation has become the norm. Attitudes to same-sex sex has been, has been liberalized. 
pornography is mainstream, and the idea of gender fluidity is everywhere. So how do these ideological developments spread so rapidly to be so widely accepted in our society today? And the answer has to do with a combination of carefully orchestrated media, propaganda, and censorship. So in 1989, a famous book called After the Ball by Kirk and Madsen was published, and this book provided very detailed instructions on how to bring about a homosexual revolution. So the authors outlined a systematic desensitization program involving, and I quote, a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion. The authors also gave advice on how to most effectively portray homosexuals as victims and its opponents as victimizers, as homophobes. As you can see today, virtually every part of this program has been very successfully implemented. Popular media has also played a very significant role in shaping our perceptions. Just think about the many TV shows that feature uh, LGBT characters. Friends, Ellen, Will and Grace, How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, Glee, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I'm just naming a few. All of this has contributed to the desensitization of homosexuality in our culture. And finally, educational propaganda, like the Safe Schools Program, We're at Purple Day, and LGBT children's books are all designed to normalize the next generation's attitudes to homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Now, we've mapped 300 years of history. And my aim in this is not so that you can, uh, to give you ammunition to go out there and go, this is what you've done wrong, this is what you don't understand. No, this is the air that you have grown up breathing as well. And the point of understanding all this history is so that you can understand why our culture story of sex is so plausible to so many ordinary people. Can you see that? If there's no objective morality, if truth and morality is just a construct of my mind, if, if I should be free to express my sexuality however I like, and if sex isn't linked to children anymore, why should sex continue to be confined for marriage between a man and a woman. What's so wrong with men having sex with men and women having sex with women? It might not be my choice, but who am I to deny others their choice? This is our culture's story of sex, the freedom to express your inner self. So let's turn to God's story of sex. And we're at point two, the unchanging teaching of the Bible. Now, the most detailed treatment of homosexuality in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 1, which we read earlier. In verses 18 to 20, the Apostle Paul begins by saying that all humanity faces God's wrath because it has suppressed the truth about God, the truth that God has revealed uh, about himself in creation. And then Paul goes on to illustrate how this has happened in three ways. So have a look in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of God for images of creatures. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. In other words, uh, people choose to reject God. 
This is the Bible's definition of sin. And this is where Paul begins uh, this passage as well. Now, in response to this exchange, God gives people over to their sin. So, verse 24, God gave them up to sexual immorality. Verses 26 to 27, God gave them up to homosexuality. And verses 28 to 31, God gave them up to a whole range of sinful behavior. Now, notice that this giving over to sin is God's present-day judgment. There will be a future judgment. This is what Christians normally talk about, isn't it? If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, just flip over the page. Paul says this, The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's God's future judgment. It's coming. But in chapter 1, Paul is saying that God is already expressing his anger against sin by giving us over to our sinful desires. And so back to chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is or is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, we turn our backs on God God turns his back on us, and he gives us over to what we want. There are several important truths that I want to draw out from this passage now. First, distorted sexual desires are the result of our turning away from God. In Romans 1, notice that Paul is talking in corporate rather than individual terms. That is, humanity as a whole has suppressed the truth of God and exchanged it for a lie. And so God gives humanity as a whole over to sinful patterns of behavior. We live in a fallen, disordered world under God's judgment. What this means is that the presence of same-sex attraction in some people isn't because they've sinned in a particular way or because they've turned away from God more than others. Rather, it's a sign that humanity as a whole has, has turned away from God. Which leads to the second truth, and that is, homosexual behavior isn't being singled out as a more sinful sin. Now, we're focusing on it because we're going through a series on sexuality, right? But in the passage, it's not the focus. You can look at, this is clear from the immediate context of the passage, because homosexual sin is presented within a broad range of a whole uh, other range of sins. There's no indication that this is a list of worse sins and more worse sins. Furthermore, it's important to recognize that this passage occurs within a broader discussion of the gospel. This is made clear in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And then in the rest of chapter 1, Paul goes on to establish that all humanity is unrighteous in God's sight and all humanity is condemned under his judgment. In chapter 2, Paul attacks judgmental attitudes uh, of his Jewish readers who thought they could be justified before God by works of the law. Then in chapter 3, his argument is building up. In chapter 3, having shown that every single person is guilty before God, Paul presents the gospel as the only way of salvation. Because in the gospel, God's righteousness can be received by faith in Jesus. So look at chapter 3, 
verse 23, at the pinnacle of uh, Paul's argument, he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so Romans chapter 1 provides no grounds whatsoever for Christians to judge homosexual people as worse sinners. Paul isn't singling out homosexual people as deserving of greater condemnation. Paul's point is that we're all guilty, we all need the gospel, and no one can claim the moral high ground. Which brings us to the third truth. Homosexual behaviour is not a more sinful sin. Nevertheless, it is a sin and it's clearly condemned. So in verse 26, Paul condemns homosexual relationships and you'll notice that he uses the words that are contrary to nature. Now some people argue that Paul is using the word nature to refer to a person's sexual inclination. According to this view, Paul is talking about heterosexual people who are engaging in homosexual activity Does that make sense? Heterosexual people who are engaging in what is unnatural for them, and that is homosexual activity. And so Paul isn't talking about people who are naturally homosexual engaging in homosexual activity. However, it's clear that Paul is using the word nature to refer not to a person's sexual inclination, but to God's created order. We've seen this in verses 18 to 25, haven't we? Paul has creation in mind. Paul's talking about what's natural for men and women. That is, what is natural for the two genders. Men were designed to have sex with women and women with men. And sex was intended for marriage between a man and a woman. And so homosexual activity is wrong because it goes against God's creative purposes. It goes against his design. Which begs the question, why did God create us different, male and female? Why did God create sex for marriage between a man and a woman? To to answer this, we need to take a step back. And when we do take a step back, to consider the bigger picture, we see that marriage actually occupies a very central place in the unfolding story of the Bible. The Bible begins in Genesis with a marriage between two people, Adam and Eve. And it ends in Revelation with a marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. In between these two marriages, which bookend the Bible, the imagery of marriage and sex comes up over and over again. So in the Old Testament, God declares himself to be Israel's husband. And the husband's love for his wife is used as a metaphor for God's love for his people. We saw a glimpse of this earlier when we read Ezekiel 16, which uses very uh, sexual imagery, doesn't it? Then when we come to the New Testament, Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. And Paul spoke about the relationship between a husband and a wife as pointing to the profound mystery of the union between Christ and the church. The bigger picture of the Bible shows us why God created marriage and sex to be between a man and a woman. It's to help us grasp the passionate nature 
of his love for his people and the intimate union for which, uh, with Jesus for which every one of us was created. And so do you see that to make marriage anything but what God intended, the permanent sexual union of a man and a woman, to make marriage anything but this is to undermine its very purpose of pointing to his love. Same-sex union cannot bear witness to this complementary union of Christ with his bride, the church. Brothers and sisters, this is God's story of sex. It's the story of his passionate love for his people, the story of his desire to reconcile rebellious people like you and me to himself. And he made this possible through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. God's story of sex is the story of John chapter 3, verse 16, that famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But what does it look like to live out God's story of sex then? And we're at point three. Christian discipleship. Anne is same-sex attracted and she became a Christian during university. Now listen to her struggle early on. She says this, At first, I think I found it very hard to accept the biblical teaching about sexuality. It seemed very unfair that God would prevent me from having a relationship and I was torn really because I wanted to be obedient to God but I found it really, really hard. And I think I found it hard because I didn't fundamentally trust that he had my best interests at heart. It was, very, it was a very much gritted teeth obedience for a lot of years. And I think, and it isn't very easy to sustain that. And so I did it. How do we care for someone like Anne? What does Christian discipleship look like for the person who experiences same-sex attraction? You know what I think as I thought about it this week? I don't think it looks all that different as it would for any Christian, actually. Yes, same-sex attracted uh, people will experience particular struggles, but don't we all? When we look below the surface, regardless of our sexuality, we have a lot more in common than, you think we, than, uh, than we think. We're all made in God's image and valued by him, and we all struggle with sin in our lives. When you understand that, you see that Christian discipleship is not all that different. But before we go any further, a brief note on change. I want to say that our ultimate goal in Christian discipleship with those who are same-sex attracted is not changing their sexual orientation. I'll say that once more. Our ultimate goal in Christian discipleship with those who are same-sex attracted is not changing their sexual orientation. Some same-sex attracted people do experience change and have gone on to become married in a heterosexual marriage. And we should pray for that. But many others don't and continue to experience same-sex attraction for the rest of their lives. I want to say that our ultimate goal in Christian discipleship is to encourage them to remain faithful in their sexuality, whether that's expressed in a heterosexual marriage or in singleness and celibacy. And isn't that the same goal that we would have of any Christian? So let me suggest seven key biblical truths for all Christians to consider. And this is by no means a comprehensive list. First, 
The feeling of sexual desires is not permission to act upon them. As we've seen from Romans 1, all distorted sexual desires are a result of our turning away from God, and homosexual behavior is against God's will. God has, God has ordained the one flesh union of a man and a woman as the proper context for sexual expression because of what it points to. And so homosexual desires, in the same way as misplaced heterosexual desires, should not be acted upon. Second, your true identity is not your sexuality, but as a child of God. In the sexual revolution of our times, same-sex attracted people are encouraged to come out and identify themselves by their sexual orientation. I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm bi, etc. But if you trust in Jesus, God has brought you into his family and given you a new identity in Christ. You are a child of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, In love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Lorne Roberts is a pastor who experiences same-sex attraction, and this is what he says about this. I don't choose to use the language of being gay because I think for many people that implies an identity, and I don't regard this as my identity. It's just part of my experience of life. But my fundamental identity is as a Christian. That's who I am, and that determines how I want to live my life. And we all need to be reminded of this, don't we? Because how do you uh, tend to define yourself? As a mom or dad? As single or married? As a student or worker? Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, you are first and foremost a child of God. Third, godliness isn't heterosexuality. Godliness is Christ-likeness. It's about becoming like Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. For many, same-sex attraction will continue to be the, the experience of their life despite prayer for change. But lack of progress in becoming a heterosexual doesn't mean lack of progress as a Christian. And it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Furthermore, heterosexuality doesn't guarantee godliness in sexual purity, does, uh, in sexual purity, does it? You and I who are heterosexuals know this all too well. In the area of sexual sin, we are all guilty one way or another. And so there's no place for self-righteousness. As Jesus warned, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, first take the log out of your own eye. Fourth, singleness is good. As Christians, we need to affirm the goodness of singleness for those for whom marriage isn't an option. Remember, Jesus himself was single. And in him we see the fullness of life as God intended. And then there's, there's the example and teaching of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages single Christians to remain single as he was because singleness provides a unique opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. And we'll explore this more next week as Huey preaches on marriage and singleness. Fifth, deep friendships can provide the relational inter intimacy that we all need.
We live in a highly sexualized culture that tells us that sex is the only way to find intimacy. That is a lie. The Bible speaks highly of friendships in the book of Proverbs, for example. And there are examples of some wonderful friendships in the Bible that are really loving and really caring, like David and Jonathan, for example. Now, building deep friendships isn't easy. It will require time and openness and perseverance. But building deep friendships is a necessary step for caring for those with same-sex attraction as well, for, as well as for everyone in the church, both married and singles. David is a Christian who chose to remain single because of his same-sex attraction. And these are his reflections. Of course, I miss romantic relationships, and on some level, I miss sex. But in another sense, not at all, because actually the search deep down behind sex in our society is the search for intimacy. I found the intimacy I was looking for in Christ and in the church. Which brings us to the sixth truth, and that is, church is family. The New Testament uses family language all the time to describe church. And Paul encourages Timothy to treat older men as fathers, older, uh, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Church is family, and living out this reality, not just talking about it, but living it out is an important step to supporting single people among us. So Ed Shaw, another Christian pastor who experiences same-sex attraction, says this, When church feels like a family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. When it hasn't worked is when I've struggled most. The same-sex attracted Christians I've met who are suffering most are those in churches that haven't grasped this at all and that don't even notice these individuals. If church is our family, that's got to look a whole lot more than just talking to each other over morning tea, don't you think? And by the way, married people, you need the support of single people as much as they need yours. Finally, suffering is the heart is at the very heart of all Christian discipleship. This is extremely countercultural because our society tells us to pursue happiness and avoid suffering at all costs. But Jesus called his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Because ultimately, that's what Jesus came to do. He came and he denied himself to the point of death on a cross so that we could be made right with God. This means that suffering cannot be avoided by those who follow the crucified Lord. And so Christians who experience same-sex attraction need to be affirmed that the cost of living in obedience to Jesus is eternally worth it. As Jesus went on to tell his disciples, for whoever would lose uh, for, have, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Remember Anne, the girl who became a Christian during university and who found it hard to remain obedient to God? Well, God didn't let her go. He brought her back. And this is now what Anne says. If I was asked to give advice to somebody who's same-sex attracted and a Christian... I would say, put Jesus first. Love him with all your heart and soul and mind. 
Because it's totally worth it. Whatever you give up for him, it's totally worth it. Brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge that in the era of sexuality, we as Christians have often got it wrong. We have often followed a sub-Christian view of sex. We have often failed to love and care for other people as equals made in the image of God. We have often been harsh and judgmental in our attitude towards those with same-sex attraction. And our failure has not only contributed to the rise of our culture's story of sex, but it's also damaged God's story of sex. And so we need to rediscover that story. We need to rediscover God's story of sex, a story that is grounded in his eternal purposes and that points to his incredible love for sinful people like you and me. For us who trust in Jesus, our identity isn't something we discovered within ourselves. Our identity is something that God has given to us in Christ. And so in our ever-changing culture, our culture's story of sex promises freedom to express our inner self. But in God's unchanging word and in his unchanging purposes, God's story of sex promises freedom to live in harmony with who God created and redeemed you to be. And so will you settle for our culture's story of sex? Or will you embrace God's better story of sex? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge before you first and foremost that we are all sexual failures, that we have all fallen short of your glory and have rejected you and your good ways. Father, please forgive us in our failures. Please forgive us in the way that we have tried to hold the moral high ground and made uh, people who have been made equal in your image feel excluded and marginalized. Father, please forgive us. Please help us and remind us of your good story of sex. That sex between, uh, in the marriage between a man and a woman points to your love for your people, to your creative and redemptive purposes for the world. And Father, pray that you would help us to hold out this story of sex as the better story of sex. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.